0: So, one of the most um, contentious and controversial topics today is that of free speech. You know, we talk a lot about misinformation uh, when it comes to COVID and cures and vaccines and government policy around COVID. We talk about hate speech. You know, should people be allowed to yell slurs uh, at each other online or in person? Um, Who should be allowed to speak on campus uh, or in organizations? What voices should be included in the dialogue, including the conversation, which ones shouldn't? I was talking to my baby brother um, a while ago, and he was making a really common sense point about hate speech, where he was like, It's just common sense. Like, we know what hate speech looks like. Why shouldn't we have policies that abridge people's speech so that, you know, we prevent this like hateful rhetoric? You know, why should people be allowed to say the N-word, for example? And I did my best to articulate why that is and what what the challenge is of deciding what is and isn't hate speech Um, and the kind of corruption and um, power dynamic that's inherent in being the decider, being the arbiter of what is right speech and what is wrong speech. But I wanted to go further and I wanted to revisit one of the most powerful, eloquent, comprehensive defenses of free speech that's ever existed, namely John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. And so this podcast is really, you know, dedicated to my baby brother, you know, who's a, a deeply passionate, moral person. He, he cares about the downtrodden, and, you know, he has this common sense view of um, the fact that there are obvious things that we all agree are bad and harmful, that people are saying. So why shouldn't we just abridge their speech? Now my my personal view is we shouldn't. But we'll we'll put my view to the side for now and we'll we'll dig into John Stuart Mill's argument and we'll also, you know, steelman the case for censorship too. Because we want to have an honest honest assessment of the situation and like the pros and cons and argue against the strongest case for censorship as well. So, Don Stuart Mill's argument starts in a place where he says that for most of history, the relationship between the governed and governments was one of clear exploitation. Authority was derived from inheritance or conquest, and the power of the state was regarded as necessary, but also highly dangerous, Um, as a weapon they would use against their subjects, no less than external enemies. So there was this wave of revolutions, uh, revolutions of parchment and the sword that kind of drew the line between liberty and authority and caused the recognition of rights um, and ultimately constitutions that enshrine our freedoms and rights. So after this point, like you, you've probably heard this refrain at times where people are like, the government, you know, they're just people just like us, right? So that view originated... Once this relationship between the governed and the government became one that wasn't purely derived from inheritance or conquest, so people started to see the government as an extension of themselves. Reconceptualization of the government <clears throat> as the concentrated will of the people collapsed this tension between authority and liberty for a lot of people. So, what this means is basically like, like, like my baby brother was saying, you know. If we, you know, all of us, the people, know that certain things are, are wrong and harmful, why shouldn't our representative government, who is an extension of ourselves, exercise our will and stop this, you know, hateful rhetoric from proliferating, right? So Mill's first argument that kind of like raises questions with that is the fact that the people who exercise power are not the same people who uh, it's exercised over so the self-government spoken of um, during mill's time and today is not the government of each by himself but of each by all the rest so the will of the people moreover means the will of the most numerous or most active part of the people the majority are those who succeeded making themselves accepted as the majority so why does that matter well right now you know let's say today, right? So there's a a Democrat in the White House, um, there is a Democratic House and Senate. So great, you know, like in in a lot of people's minds, these people represent the best values of the United States. Now, I think that's, uh, uh, only partially true at best, but let's just say for sake of argument, that's true. There have been, I think it's fair to say for most governments, for most of history there has been significant or mostly e- like you know evil acts perpetrated by the by the rulers of society so as an example like <clears throat> if you go back 50 years to the jim crow south i mean that was in the united states right so like the, the the government was a representative government you you could make the same argument at that time that this is the concentrated will of the people Um, And it has to be allowed to uh, do what it will. Mill talks then about like the tyranny of the majority. So what does that mean? You might hear that, you know, during election years, these debates kind of come up. So the way Mill describes it is, When society is itself the tyrant, its means of tyrannizing are not restricted to the acts which it may do by the hand of its political functionaries. It practices a social tyranny more formidable than many kinds of political oppression since though usually not upheld by such extreme penalties it leaves fewer means of escape penetrating much more deeply into the details of life and enslaving the soul itself this describes the state of modern society so well um there's a chilling effect on debate and dialogue there's a a constant fear of, of um you know saying and doing the wrong thing um there's a constant fear of you know, expressing a good-faith counterpoint to the dogmas of the day and to the dogmas of an increasingly narrow subset of society. So, you know, there was a, I believe, Pew or Gallup poll that I, I saw a while ago which showed only extremely progressive liberals are comfortable expressing their views in a, in a public setting, such as work or school. Um, and when I say only extremely progressive liberals, I mean even progressive liberals... Or moderately progressive liberals, or centrists, or like forget Republicans, or forget people on the far right. I'm talking about everybody that's not like a extremely progressively liberal activist type of person, is um, is not comfortable expressing their views. Um, and you saw this degree of preference falsification and kind of this chilling effect during the Trump era. And the thing is. I mean, it's kind of the perfect illustration of Mill's point thus far and his points later through the piece, where the, the outcome of all this censorship through, you know, social tyranny, not just political tyranny, but a kind of insidious, uh, pervasive blanket over discussion, or just like a very narrow Overton window. The consequence of that was that Trump got elected. So people didn't didn't say they support Trump. So that was successful. That portion of the effort was successful, but ultimately their actions were in line with their true views and beliefs. And if there had been open dialogue, you would have been able to <clears throat> meet them um, on the field of argumentation and have the discussion and perhaps get to a point of greater truth. And, and I just think like I just think that lesson was missed because in order to achieve what progressives were hoping to achieve by suppressing dialogue to this extent, you have to go even further, right? You have to not only force people to falsify their preferences, you have to not allow them to express their preferences in the vote and in other, in other politically meaningful venues. And that's not really an option in our society, and I would say that's a good thing. So therefore, what has to happen is you have to have open dialogue so that you can build your intellectual immune system and contend with the arguments of the other side and honestly give them a fair consideration and, and steal man the, the arguments of the other side. So the tyranny of the majority. So Mill says, you know, sometimes we need to control the behavior of others as a society. So when? When, when, when do we do that? In In mills argument he says basically we can coerce others if they're going to harm other people directly and that point of directness is really really important so the reason why that's really important is when you start talking about contingent harms so what is a direct harm and what is a contingent harm so um a direct harm would be you know i say get him, like, get that guy, and there's like a mob with pitchforks, and we run after him, and we get him. And I- indirect harm would be something like, I say, this uh, individual is exploiting his workers, and then people hear that, they get upset, and then they go and attack him, right? The problem with taking an indirect definition of harm uh, as a justification for coercion is, the chain of contingency can be infinitely long. So what I mean by that is, what if instead of, you know, instead of just me saying, oh, that guy exploits his workers and then people attack him, who 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 ta- who taught told me that? Who told me that this guy exploits his workers? Well, maybe it was a journalist, right? And what about, like, the journalist? Where did he get that information? He got it from his source. And that source, you know, he got that information by working at this guy's factory and he has his own... Um, His own education that like informed his views and his own uh perceptions and his friends and family right so the point is if you allow contingent harm as a justification to censor people shut them down coerce them uh put them in jail or even kill them there are many regimes in the world that that uh, use these types of arguments to actively do away with dissidents you can basically you know take out anyone for anything and it becomes a tool of power to suppress and damage your your uh, opponents and to basically like secure your position from a much more pragmatic and cold and uh amoral kind of uh, standpoint so and, and i think this harm question is really really interesting because There's also been a lot of concept creep in what harm means. So, in the 20th century, you know, what's his name? Um, Wilhelm Wundt ran the first academic psychology lab in Leipzig at the turn of the century. And then you have William James. And you have this movement of uh, academic psychology followed by the movement of psychotherapy and well being that kind of stems from that. And there's a lot of positives to that movement. One of the negatives to that that movement in this context is the redefinition of harm. So in Mill's time, harm did not mean, you know, I feel bad. I was made to feel bad. Harm means I was locked up. um, I was put in the Tower of London. I was drawn and quartered. I had my arm lopped off. Something along those lines. Or I had my property confiscated. I had my livelihood harmed. Things that are uh, uh, more concrete than that and more measurable and more uh, verifiable. And the reason why that's important is, if I'm able to use, you know, subjective uh, emotionally defined harm as a lever to silence others, in that subjectivity is the opportunity for, again, this amoral calculating power play to take place where you're you're able to um, manipulate the good intentions of others to suppress your opponents or your competitors, uh, for lack of a, a better word. So, so Mill, you know, with, with this um, loose definition of harm has really opened up, um, opened up a whirlwind of, uh, of trouble. To give the devil his due, it's like, it's hard to draw the line, right? <clears throat> so let's say, you know, You're on a college campus and you're gay and you're being bullied and you're you're not being physically harmed but you're being bullied to the point where you kill yourself right i suppose the action is killing yourself and there's a concrete harm there but just prior to that action there was a critical mass of psychological duress that you were then likely to do that so so these questions aren't aren't so cut and dry um Again, trying to give the devil his due, <clears throat> psychological harm is is real. I think the challenge of psychological harm, as I see it, is the subjectivity of it creates an opportunity for malevolence. That's what it is. Uh, that, that, that's how I view it. And you know, people respond to incentives and. I think that's the challenge there. And I think the other other aspect of this is so earlier this week the CEO of my company was doing a a session on this like Stanford Interpersonal Dynamics course. And in that course, a lot of it is built around being able to express to other people how you feel. So being able to say clearly, you know, these, these things happen objectively and this is how they made me feel. But the point of doing that is to connect with them and to um, give them the opportunity to understand you better. It's it's not to club them or coerce them or or damage them. So so there there's the challenge, right? It's 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 not like I'm saying that psychological harm isn't important or shouldn't be discussed or, or you know can't be truly harmful. What I'm saying is, I think that the place to explore psychological harm is a place of dialogue. is a place of um, trying to connect with other people empathize with other people help other people understand you better and not control and harm and manipulate other people so 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 that's that's some of the discussion around where individual liberty can and should be infringed according to mill another thing that he kind of specifies here is there should be some kind of utilitarian calculus wherein society does not perform coercive acts where their control produces greater evil than that which it prevents. So the challenge is, people's utility functions vary, right? Like what, what is, um, you know, what, what provides utility to a sociopathic, um, cannibalistic serial killer is not what provides utility to, um, you know, my sweet fiance. Uh, or my standard poodle. So the point there is like, it's really hard to actually make an effective utilitarian calculus when it comes to some of these things. And people are incentivized to manipulate the calculation to favor the things that they already want to do or pragmatically need to do to secure their position. And there's some evidence of this in the psychology literature where extremely intelligent people are much more skilled at rationalizing their own arguments than they are at doing the same for counter-arguments or for, you know, making counter-arguments robust so it's like, it's really challenging to truly objectively perform you know, these types of um, calculations I think that Utilitarian calculus does have a place, and I don't think there's an easy, easy way to get around it. So, so a great example of utilitarian calculations done effectively, I think, is an organization they, like GiveWell, um, where they go through and look at a bunch of charitable interventions, and um, they look at how many quality-adjusted life years you can save per dollar for a variety of interventions. And at some point we'll talk about effective altruism and we'll do, you know, The Life You Can Save, Peter Singer's great book on Effective Altruism. So it, it, it's tough, like, I mean, COVID is a great example too, right? Like, I don't believe I've seen any reasonable cost-benefit analysis done on an intervention in the entire period of time that COVID has been around. Or if it has been done, I think it, it hasn't been utilized or, or publicized or referenced. Uh, It's been much more, the COVID response has been much more based on optics, the moral intuition of harm, and trying to reduce harm as much as possible, and I think that that's really cost us as a society, and it's cost a lot of trust as well, but anyway... Mill says, you know, there's one area of life that society should never interfere in, and that's the portion of a man's life that directly affects only himself. So first, that entails liberty of conscience, liberty of thought, and absolute freedom of opinion and sentiment on all subjects, practical or speculative, scientific, moral, or theological. So let me, let me read for you, um, straight from the source, on why the freedom of opinion and expressing opinions are essentially inseparable from each other so what he says about that is he says the principle of freedom of thought requires liberty of tastes and pursuits of framing the plan of our life to suit our own character of doing as we like subject to such consequences as may follow without impediment from our fellow creatures so long as what we do does not harm them directly even though they should think our conduct foolish, perverse, or wrong. Um, And he he goes on to say, you know, no society in which these liberties are not on the whole respected is free, whatever may be its form of government, and none is completely free in which they do not exist, absolute and unqualified. And this is a, a really psychologically insightful passage from Mill, and kind of follows from what I'm saying about human nature and um, our tendency to have multiple conflicting intentions and respond to incentives and you know sometimes people are using compassion as a shield for a kind of amoral calculating pragmatic machiavellian um, type of behavior So he says the disposition of mankind whether as rulers or as fellow citizens is to impose their own opinions and inclinations as a rule of conduct on others and it's so energetically supported by some of the best and by some of the worst feelings incident to human nature that it is hardly ever kept under restraint by anything but want of power and as the power is not declining but growing unless a strong barrier of moral conviction can be raised against the mischief we must expect in the present circumstances of the world to see it increase and indeed it did increase from mill's time to today right i mean after mill's time you had nazi germany you had uh, the soviet union you have big brother is, is always watching you have um you know n- not putting a moral equivalence between these things but you also have the you know warrantless wiretapping of the bush years you have um The NSA, you know, looking at our cell phone metadata. And, of course, you have the big tech monopolies and their, um, you know, pervasive, softer brand of coercion that's very challenging to escape. Going back to the social tyranny that Mill mentioned. So you can see how contemporary um, On Liberty really is. It, It reminds me of Orwell in that way where it could have been written, in a sense, it could have been written today, um, though the depth of analysis and the, um, foresight that I see in Mill is, is rare today. And, and that's why I wanted to go back to Mill because, you know, it's less processed information. So we keep having this free speech debate. We keep talking about misinformation. We keep talking about hate speech. You know, let's go back to the text that helped, you know, define and prop up the institutions that today enshrine and protect free speech. Um you know, let's, let's read it for ourselves and make up our own minds um, on, on how we feel about it. So Mill states that Again, restates that. Um so, why is free speech even important? Like, what what social good does it uh, does it do for us? Well, well, the social good that comes from f- free speech, uh, in Mill's words, is, you know, if someone's sharing an opinion, if the opinion is right, you know you're deprived of the opportunity of exchanging error for truth. And if the person is wrong, you know, you lose what is almost as great a benefit, the clearer perception and livelier impression of truth produced by its collision with error. And another crucial uh, part of Mill's argument is we can never be sure that the opinion we're endeavoring to stifle is a false opinion. And if we were sure, stifling it would be an evil still. So going back to the point about hate speech, um... You know, Ridu, you know, when we were having our discussion, your point is it's obvious and clear that it's wrong to be racist and to, you know, call someone a racial slur. And what I would say is it's, it's clear to us, right? I mean, a um, hundred years ago, racist arguments were clear to the majority of society, you know, and it was as absur- absurd to them to consider an argument for equality as it is for us to consider an argument for racism. So I think that that's the thing to understand is we wouldn't have been able to get to this point without free speech, without free argumentation to actually like challenge people's preconceptions, their dearly held preconceptions. Um, You know, and my intention with this is obviously not to go backwards, but to go forwards, you know, um, and, and the other aspect of this to understand is, if we suppress the arguments of hateful people, we won't develop sufficiently rigorous counter arguments to equip people to um, you know, resist once the first domino falls. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, is, let's say you go through your education, four years of high school, four years of college, and you rarely hear um, any arguments for let's just say, you know, conservative policies and a conservative philosophy. When you notice the first discrepancy and the first domino falls, where you're like, wait a second, this seems like it's an incomplete truth, it's a half truth. Unless you have reasonable counter arguments, I mean, all the rest of the dominoes are going to fall and you might fully change your, your views across the board. Um, and if those views are true and accurate, that's good. But they're not all accurate. Nobody has access to the full truth, and especially when it comes to politics, you know, each political philosophy possesses a set of half truths that is completed by its counterpart um, across the aisle. Um, and not not seeing that is extremely dangerous for society, for yourself. Um, for having a clear and accurate perception uh, of reality and being able to therefore contend with that reality. So, moving forward, um, oh yeah, and and right here, the way Mill puts it is, things that appear clear and truthful to you appear delusional to others and vice versa. You could have been born a Buddhist in Peking or a churchman in London, and you would have possibly an equal fervor in each set of beliefs. So, you know, putting it in uh, the terms of his day, but... It's hard, to, it's hard to overcome this mind blindness and see the extent to which, you know, we ha- imbibe widely held social truths unquestioningly. Um, and, and I just think it's important to remember that. And, and I also think, you know, as Rithu really you're going through, Rithu's really my brother, by the way, as you're going through school and you encounter these, you know, great figures from the past, it's it's worthwhile to consider if you were born in that time what beliefs and behaviors you would embody um because you know even if you're like a let's say an 80th percentile moral moral person your level of moral righteousness is you know greater than 80 percent of your peers still for most of history you would likely be racist, tribal, sexist, and um, depending on how far back in history you go, possibly or probably violent. Um, uh, I'm going to do an episode on the Peloponnesian War soon, but it's hard to see a protagonist in the story of the Peloponnesian War because it's a war between Athens and Sparta, and when either side takes a city, the first thing they do is, like, kill all the men, enslave the women and children. Um, And it's not, like, ever commented on, like, and that was bad. It's always, like, and that's what happened. On to the next part of the story. Um, So it's important to just keep that in mind um, when you're considering great figures from history. Um, So, anyway, that's not to say it's, it's, like, good, but that is to say, you know, just... Beware of uh, unearned moral superiority. Um, Let's see here. So there's a good passage here that, that talks about how the suppression of opinions weakens the truths we try to defend. And again, we really saw this during the Trump era. So... There is the greatest difference between presuming an opinion to be true because, with every opportunity for contesting it, it has not been refuted, and assuming its truth for the purpose of not permitting its refutation. Complete liberty of contradicting and disproving our opinion is the very condition which justifies us in assuming its truth for the purposes of action. And on no other terms can a being with human faculties have any rational assurance of being right. And I think this is extremely important to remember, especially today, with the porous, transparent media environment. It's easy to, you know, point at the people and be like, you know, and blame them for losing trust in our institutions. But in reality, it's the suppression and sometimes not political, sometimes not violent, but definitely social at the bare minimum, and sometimes more. Um, suppression of counter-argumentation that's created this vacuum in which distrust has been able to grow and grow and grow and grow. Um, and we can think of so many instances, but, you know, the stuff with the PPE and masks, um, the stuff early on where the WHO was saying that, um, you know, it's everything is fine and it's you should keep allowing people to fly in from China. Uh, various politicians were saying that too with COVID. Um, you know, it's, and there, there there's just so many cases of this, but these are some, um, I think also when you look at an issue like climate change, this is an important one where you would think because climate change is so important, the thing to do would be to suppress counter-argumentation, right? And when I say you would think, Arik, I don't mean you by any means. You're an extremely pro-free speech person. I don't mean you, Margaret. I don't mean... Mostly you do. Um, I don't mean like anyone that is really in my orbit, but there are those who are inclined to kind of, you know, use the, the consensus of scientists as a cudgel uh, and use social opprobrium to kind of, like, silence counter-argumentation when it comes to climate change. Um... But the challenge with that is again, you weaken your own arguments. You don't give yourself ample space to play the contact sport of argumentation and build the calluses, build the uh, muscle memory to be able to come out on top. Um, And also you don't see flaws in your argument, like areas where your, your, your argument is not accurate. Um, so, you know, most of the intelligent counter-argumentation on that topic is around the scope and scale of the issue and the solutions that would be most effective. Um, and it is heavily suppressed, heavily criticized, heavily censured, uh, and inappropriately so. But anyway, I, any any contentious topic today, this is the case. where Where the strategy of the defenders of people you know and 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 truths don't realize they're actually harming those people and harming their arguments for truth um, by taking this approach so and, and here you know he says what about beliefs that are useful and essential to society but ultimately untrue um well let me let me go straight to the text and, and let's Let's look at those. So in his time, obviously, that was Christianity and religion, right? Um, so, let's see here. There are, it is alleged, certain beliefs so useful, not to say indispensable, to well-being, that it is as much the duty of the of governments to uphold those beliefs as to protect any other of the interests of society. So let's see claim that people make is he's laying out the claim and then he's like it's often argued and still oftener thought that none but bad men would desire to weaken these salutary beneficial beliefs uh and there can be nothing wrong it is thought in restraining bad men and prohibiting what only such men would wish to practice it's just insane how contemporary this book is like it it shocks me how contemporary it is um so basically what he says is you know you need an infallible judge of right and wrong of truth and falsehood in order to um make this calculation and we don't have this calculation and people would argue well what about the scientific consensus and what i would argue is again you go back 200 years the scientific consensus was that uh people of different races are not equal you go back further, the scientific consensus was that um, the freaking, um, you know, sun rotates around the earth. Right? And, and the scientific consens- consensus in every era has been wrong about many, if not most things. Um, that's not to say that it's always wrong, and I think it's less wrong today than it's been in the past. Um, and just to be clear, I do believe in man-made climate change, so I'm not trying to s- single, single that out. And I also believe that, um, the COVID vaccines are efficacious enough that they're worth getting. So, um, just to, just to clarify there, but what I am saying is at best, the scientific consensus contains incomplete truths. Um, at worst, it contains, you know, major falsehoods. And for most of history, for most of the time, it's been mostly false. Um so so what about utility right so the next thing he says is who decides which beliefs that are false are so beneficial that we we must protect them at all costs and he says there you need an infallible judge of utility which doesn't exist um, you know and then you come going to a discussion of something like scientific Marxism right where the language and methodologies of science were falsely appropriated to provide an air of infallibility to the utilitarian calculators making these decisions. And by calculators, I mean people making calculations. Um, And, you know, we saw how that went. Now, you know, with China, you see that it's going better because they've gotten smarter about it. They understand when and where to use free markets um, to, you know, allocate resources and, and, generate innovation. Um, but the point remains the same, which is no one is infallible. Um, no one's infallible. And the best we can do is to come together and, um, allow each person to be their own judge of utility, as long as they don't cause direct harm to others. Um, so he, he lists, like, you know, cases of improper judgment. Uh, some of these have aged better than others. But, you know, he's basically saying... Socrates, this is his first example. So he's like, hey, you know, mankind can hardly be too often reminded that there was once a man named Socrates, between whom and the legal authorities and public opinion of his time, there took place a memorable collision... And at some point we'll do Socrates. Um, We'll do him real good. We'll do him real good. Better than he was done in his own time. Because he wasn't much of a player. But we're going to do Xenophon on Socrates. Uh, We'll do Plato on Socrates. And we'll do, uh, what's his name? Um, Actually one of the best pieces on Socrates, which was Aristophanes. Um, The clouds, which, again, it it just boggles my mind how well some of these things have held up. Like, the clouds could still apply today to, um, you know, the ivory tower. And, like, as a critique of, like, the eccentric irrelevancies indulged in by uh, academics who basically, like, you know, take in um, children and propagandize them. Not universally, but... Once in a while, it has been known to happen. Um, Alright, so another thing he says here, another example is, Orthodox Christians who are tempted to think that those who stoned to death the first martyrs must have been worse men than themselves ought to remember that one of those persecutors was St. Paul. So this is the John Stuart Mill era version of what I was saying uh, to you, really, which is like, you think that all these people in the past who were terrible racists are worse than yourself but really they're just people just like you and me Um, and it's natural to feel that way because what they were saying and doing was so horrific but it's important to understand that you know the line dividing good and evil lies in every man's heart paraphrasing but I think I get the general content of that quote I think that was roughly what the quote is. So um, let's see here. So another thing that he, he says is shouldn't truth be able to withstand prosecution? You know, like if something is true, then nothing we do to like, you know, silence people and shut people down is going to, is going to really like succeed in, um, in, in holding it down, right? Like, but the reality is, he's like, actually, truth can withstand argumentation, but prosecution can suppress truth for centuries. And, you know, his, his example is that Protestant Reformations broke out 20 times before Martin Luther actually got them across. Um, and, you know, you can look at the heliocentric and, and geocentric theories, right? Um, the suppression of Galileo, succeeded in holding back truth for a significant period of time um and i'm I'm not a scholar of the dark ages at some point we might go into the dark ages and i might become an amateur you know person who's looked into the dark ages but there are a lot of truths of antiquity that were lost until the renaissance be they you know mathematical truths Truths of natural philosophy, a way of considering the world, uh, maybe something like, you know, Democritus's Adam. Um, so the point being is, like, it, it's idealistic to believe that the truth will prevail in any reasonable time frame against a regime of uh, prosecution of that type. So another thing here, and I think this is very, very important as well, is how do we deal with the heretics among us? Uh, well, some people expect them to stand with the sword of Damocles over their necks. So, you know, basically it's like, hey, you can say what you want, but you know, the consequences are on your head, right? You're free to speak. And we're free to, you know, raise a resistance against you, get you fired, um, you know, get you blackballed, get you blocked off Twitter, get you kicked off of social media. That's our freedom, too. And these are private companies and we're private individuals. So, you know, you have to deal with the responsibility of your freedom. Um, So, you know, that that argument, again, just it's crazy how, I mean, it's just crazy how, like, universal these, these dynamics are. But... So the way he puts it is the propounder of a new truth, according to this doctrine, should stand as stood in the legislation of the Locrians, the proposer of a new law with a halter around his neck to be instantly tightened if the public assembly did not, on hearing his reasons then and there, adopt his proposition. Now, does this not sound like public discourse today? Literally, where, you know, everyone has the mic, but they're just like... If you dare to use it, if you dare to have the halter around your neck, you have the mic. Um, So what he says is, you know, people who defend this mode of treating our heretics cannot be supposed to set much value on the benefit of hearing their arguments. Um, And he personally believes that this view of the subject is mostly confined to the sort of people who think that new truths may have been desirable once, but we've had enough of them now. Um, so this kind of like end of history, uh, all the stuff that, you know, needs to be discovered has been discovered ethos has always existed. Like it's always been around, um, and it's around today still, um, you know, we look back on how primitive people of other times were, and we forget that, you know, we're just as fallible, just as incomplete, um, as, as they were relative to the total set of things unknown, Right. So relative to their ignorance, we're much less ignorant. Relative to all things that can be known, we literally uh, might as well be, you know, completely ignorant. Um, you can you can round down to zero. Um, but that's not to say we don't know useful stuff, but that is to say just have a little humility um, and beware of certitude. So... Yeah. So then he goes into the whole thing about prosecution, uh, and it's a piece of idle sentimentality. The truth, merely as truth, has any inherent power to deny, um, you know, error, and of prevailing against the dungeon, the stake. So, and, and this is important too. When when we talk about this kind of like, hey, you're free to speak, but I'm free to speak to your boss and get you freaking fired. Um, the thing about that is like, his argument is social suppression is almost the point of legal punishment. His point is legal punishment for the longest period of time has been a vehicle of social stigma um so you know this power of social per- suppression itself is more broadly damaging more all-pervasive puts a chilling effect on the entire conversation and he puts it um beautifully here when it comes to preference false falsification um are merely social intolerance kills no one roots out no opinions but induces men to disguise them or abstain from any active effort for their diffusion. And man, does this sound like today? It's it's insane. Um, and he says a state of things in which a large portion of the most active and inquiring intellects finds it advisable to keep the general principles and grounds of their convictions within their own breasts, and attempt, in what they address to the public, to fit as much as they can of their own conclusions to premises which they have internally renounced, cannot send forth the open, fearless characters and logical, consistent intellects who once adorned the thinking world. The sort of men who can be looked for under this regime of suppression are either mere conformers to commonplace or time-servers for truth, whose arguments on all great subjects are meant for their hearers and are not those who have convinced themselves. And, you know, I suppose this would be in the parlance of today could be something like virtue signaling, right? So right right here, it's time servers for truth. So pandering to the commonly held beliefs of people today uh, in order to garner benefit for yourself, uh, for the benefit of your, you know, hearers, you know, um, to cater to their tastes and not because you've truly dug into this and convinced yourself and considered the counterfactuals deeply and intelligently, like you must, um, in order to truly hold a conviction. So then, you know, people narrow their thoughts and interests to things which can be spoken of without venturing within the region of principles. That is to say, small practical matters which would come right of themselves if but the minds of mankind were strengthened and enlarged and which will never be made effectually right until then while that which would strengthen and enlarge men's minds, um, free and daring speculation on the highest subjects is abandoned. So, fascinatingly here, you see, you know, in regimes of extreme suppression, people veering away from the liberal arts and social sciences and tending towards uh, science, engineering, mathematics. So in the Soviet Union, you saw this, right, where it's like, You know, it's hard to be propagandized when you're studying rocketry, when you're studying mathematics, when you're studying, um, the hard sciences. And so people tended to go into those subjects. Um, and tragically, you kind of see that again today a little bit where intelligent students who, you know, care about their prospects, um, and, and want to make the best of their, their lives, like tend to veer towards the sciences and engineering, um, you know, and I, I was a student who came into college with a lot of big questions about human nature, um, about, you know, man's search for meaning and uh, what, what it means to be a person and what it means to live a good life. And, um, you know, studying kind of biologically oriented psychology was a helpful foundation in many ways. Um, studying anthropology was mostly an exercise in propaganda, and then, you know, working in the field, uh, working in in the tech industry, taking night classes in programming, in um, various software-related topics, in data science, in math, uh, in economics, uh, microeconomics, uh, which is, you know, much less ideological than macroeconomics. Um, Honestly, it was really liberating. Um, It was really it was really clarifying uh, in many ways. So, you know, that's my own little little side tangent on that, but his point with this whole thing about the suppression of these active and inquiring intellects, these heretics, is the greatest harm is not done to them. Uh, It is, you know, to those who are not heretics and whose whole mental development is cramped, their reason cowed by the fear of heresy. Um, yeah so then he kind of like talks more about that basically you know a society where you can't take any chances and ask any big questions and delve into controversy where it feels that everything has been answered and handled by a consensus of um, faceless experts and by the way we can talk plenty about um, the accuracy um, and validity of Claims made by experts. There's a lot of good research on that from Berkeley. At some point in the future, we'll talk about it. Uh, the punchline is, you know, as I said, on many topics, most of the time, um, experts have half truths or outright falsehoods that they, you know, cherish and peddle. Um, not always. Go to the doctor. You know, like, don't go and redesign like uh your your local your local bridge you know like their expertise like true expertise should be respected and should be cultivated but for people to use their credentials to shut down conversation and prevent you from asking questions is sickeningly inappropriate um that's pretty much my view on that so um so Let's, let's let's go forward from there let's build the argument out so here here's another very common um argument today right uh what about the simpletons that's that's just me paraphrasing john Stuart Mill didn't say simpletons but the point is you know the point that he makes is or I should say the point that he's addressing that was made by his contemporaries and is still made today is what about regular people who don't have time to hash out all of these truths like they don't have time to read the literature on mrna vaccines and climate change and it's going to confuse them to give them all this nuance and you know as a result of that there's going to be like you know all, all of this harm caused i mean people are going to start drinking bleach i mean wh- you can't trust these you know busy uh people who are living their own lives to go and solve all these like you know big questions and and dig into them at an appropriate level of rigor. So the point that he makes on this uh, is basically like you need to allow at least experts to hash things out, you know, themselves, right? So, okay, so you can argue that these, these people who are, like, busy and they're regular people, you know, they're, they're not qualified to come to these judgments on their own. But the state of affairs today is even if you have a dissenting expert, they are cudgeled and they aren't allowed to, to have the discussion. And that breeds suspicion in regular people. That, that, that saps the trust of regular people because they're like, okay, what aren't they telling me? Why are they pretending there's a consensus when they, you know, when they need to suppress the arguments of other experts, that doesn't seem like a real consensus, right? So John Stuart's, John Stuart Mill's argument is allow regular people to be bystanders to this great debate at the minimum. Allow them to hear all the arguments and let the strongest arguments win uh, in this field of inquiry, right? Um, Yeah, and it's interesting this this question of argumentation um, and and free inquiry and whether that promotes optimal outcomes. We'll we'll talk about that in the Peloponnesian War too, um, because you know the counter argument to that might be: what if the right argument, what if the what if the truthful argument is one that is judicious and sober minded, boring, uninspiring, and. An argument that is salacious, uh, agitating, um, you know, emotionally charged, uh, accusatory. What what if that argument, you know, just resonates more and succeeds despite its um, lack of veracity? I would say the counter to that is if you allow open argumentation, the proponents of truth will come to cultivate a style of argumentation that is able to contend with the bombastic and salacious style of their you know interlocutors. Um, whereas if you suppress truth, you create a situation where you have you know eight people on a stage who are boring mainstream politicians and the ninth is Trump. and he just comes through and he devastates, everyone with his uh, arguments because they're just outside you know they, they come from left field and no one has had adequate time to prepare um you know prepare for that kind of um debate so what does this do to uh, the quality of dialogue what does this do to our ability to have a, a civil and like reasonable society and reasonable arguments that's fair um i think that's fair and i think it it goes back to what mill was saying about like how we treat heretics and you know having some norms of civility having some norms of you know avoiding ad hominem attacks generally speaking um but being prepared for them and being able to argue effectively against them right um suppression is not an appropriate substitute i mean between the choices of suppression and um becoming a more emotionally engaging debater your obligation as a proponent of truth is to become a more engaging debater you you kind of have to do that um in order to be a moral actor So the other side of this, you know, and we've talked a little about this, but I'll, I'll, I'll let Mill, you know say it in his own words, is that the suppression of argumentation hollows out people's beliefs. So he says there's two divisions of people who hold opinions. and there are those who hold opinions that are generally inherited and they are those who take on these opinions from them for themselves from a considered place when when it has come to be a hereditary creed that you've received passively and not actively you know when the mind is no longer compelled in the same degree as at first to exercise its vital powers on the questions which its beliefs present to it there's a progressive tendency to forget all of the belief except the formularities Sorry, he says uh, to forget all of the belief except the formularies or to give it a dull or torpid assent as if accepting it on trust, dispense with the necessity of realizing it in consciousness or testing it by personal experience until it almost ceases to connect itself at all with the inner life of the human being. So this is like, you know, you go to church and you kind of like, you know, mumble along to the service and you, you know, mu- you know, basically like, you know say the right things, but none of it actually gets in because you haven't grappled with it, right? And I think this is true for, it goes back to the intellectual immune system point. If your political beliefs, for example, are inherited from your family, your school, your teachers, and you've never actually grappled with the questions, you've never actually considered the counterpoint rigorously, deeply, you don't have real beliefs that connect to your inner life as a human being. What you have is a simulacrum of belief, and it's going to be washed away at the first instance, you know. And again, you know, you can look at a book like *Ordinary Men* about um, regular police officers who, you know, start off um, just doing what police officers do, you know, enforcing local laws, taking the local drunk to the drunk tank, and then over time, under the Nazi regime. They end up, you know, shooting pregnant women in the back of the head in the woods, you know, and and perhaps part of that is a set of received beliefs and morals that were never adequately engaged with or questioned um, in an environment of social conformity and suppression, such that your beliefs were rootless, um, and what took what replaced them are atavistic, ancient moral intuitions that, um, you know, I would a type of biker gang morality, you might say, uh, where there is recognizable reciprocity. Some of those things exist, but it's nothing like the civilized, you know, universalist morality that we need to, like, run a society. Um, you know. So, um, we've talked about half-truths. Um, let's, let's, let's look at what Mill says about, uh, half-truths here. So what Mill says is, you know, he's talking about the two cases, right? Someone is speaking and they're telling the truth. And suppressing them obviously suppresses the truth, or they're an error, and suppressing them suppresses your ability to effectively. <coughs> sorry about that, my phone fell. Effectively argue against what they're saying, so it robs you of your convictions, of your ability to develop roots and uh, have a have a deeply held belief that you know actually connects with your inner life and has legs. Um, But he says there's a third case, and it's the most common case of all, and it is when conflicting doctrines, instead of one being true and the other being false, share the truth between them, and the non-conforming opinion is needed to supply the remainder of the truth of which the received doctrine embodies only a part. He says, heretical opinions, on the other hand, are generally some of these suppressed and neglected truths, bursting the bonds which kept them down either seeking reconciliation with the truth contained in the common opinion or fronting it as enemies and setting themselves up with similar exclusiveness as the whole truth. How how real is that, right? Where it's like you have heretical opinions and, you know, either they're like, hey, we're going to complete this truth, or they're like, actually, no, the Democrats are 100% wrong. We're 100% right. I can't think of a single case in which they're right. I mean, I, I've seen this, you know, all the time, and it's um, it, it's an enemy of truth. It's an enemy of free inquiry, uh, and ultimately it's an enemy of, like, a well-functioning society. Um, but, unfortunately, human nature being what it is, you know, we, we see it uh, in the mid-1800s and, and today and further back, and I'm sure we'll see it in the future as well. But his point here is that even in revolutions of opinion, One part of the truth usually sets while another rises. So even progress, which ought to super add, for the most part only substitutes one partial and incomplete truth for another. Improvement consisting chiefly in this, that the new fragment of truth is more wanted, more adapted to the needs of the time, than that which it displaces. So I'm just going to let that sit for a second. Even when we think we're progressing... the progress that we make tends to substitute one part of the truth for another and the new part, new fragment of the truth is more wanted, more adapted to the needs of the time than that which it displaced. So there's like a helical quality to progress, right? Where it feels like you're just going in circles. Um, But in reality, you know, you're revisiting the same element of truth that was uh, sunsetted in a new light, in a more complete light, and just going kind of in a, in a helix, uh, instead of a circle, just back and forth aimlessly. Um, so I thought that was extremely well put. And in practical terms, in politics, again, it's almost a commonplace that there's a party of order and stability roughly the Republican Party, you might say, and a party of progress and reform, roughly the Democratic Party, and both are necessary elements of a healthy state of political life until the one or the other shall have so enhanced its enlarged its mental grasp as to be a party equally of order and of progress, knowing and distinguishing what is fit to be preserved from what ought to be swept away. So I think the biggest issue here is both parties but in my opinion definitely the democratic party believes that its mental grasp is such that it can be a part party of order and progress knowing and distinguishing what is fit to be preserved from what ought to be swept away i think there are many reasons for this i think it is because our educators are heavily liberal, tend to be democratic. Therefore, their students tend to become more democratic and liberal. Therefore, most educated um, experts in any given field are democratic and liberal. Therefore, you know, our journalists are democratic and liberal. Um, Big law is democratic and liberal. Big banks are democratic and liberal. Um, So when you have, you know such social authority and power on your side it's easy to believe you know what we do have the answer um and and we can be that party and there's no need for a counterpoint um on the flip side you certainly see you know conservatives struggling to produce um you know cases where the democrats are right or cases when they've done a good thing um But I do think generally conservatives are better at articulating the counterpoint than liberals are. Not all liberals. Definitely not, um, you know, the ones I know well because we all have lively debates all the time. But just a, a vague generalization. Maybe it's not true. Maybe it's true. Look to your own experiences. Consider it for yourself. And speak freely about what you you know, what you learn. what the fruits of your analysis are. So, you know, he, he goes through and he talks about, like, more about Christianity, and he's like, hey, what about the highest and most vital subjects, right? What about Christian morality? And, you know, he goes straight to the Quran, and he's like, well, actually, you know, it's in the Quran and not in the New Testament that we read the maxim, a ruler who appoints any man to an office when there is in his dominions another man better qualified for it, sins against God and against the state. And uh, when I read that, I was like, wow. I had no idea. Like, I've never considered reading the Quran. Maybe I should. Um, And then, you know, he also talks about the fact that um, much of our modern morality is derived from Greek and Roman sources, not from Christian. Uh, And this obviously, like, this stuff doesn't have the same impact today as it did in his time. Um, our all-pervasive morality is is, is not uh, Christian. At least, you know, not statedly so. Um, but the point is, um, you know, yeah, he says, even, even in that case in his time, you know, we, we have to consider our own sacred cows, right? And I think for us today, politics, like, is... Um, Pseudo religious today. So for us, it would be like you know your your political beliefs, right? It's like consider the fact that, for example, um, the Republican Party was the party of Lincoln, right? And now everyone's like, hey, uh, the great switch. They say the uh, they the Southern Democrats they they became Republican. Okay, 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 okay. We don't have to get into that. But not everybody switched, okay? Not everybody switched. So the point is, you know, it's it's not just like one side is good and one side is bad. Like the truth comes from many sources and you have to examine arguments on their own merits. Um, you know, and this kind of goes to like Isaiah Berlin's like hedgehog, hedgehogs and foxes. So Isaiah Berlin wrote this essay um, summoning a... Fragment of poetry from the Greek poet Aristarchus. And the fragment of poetry says, you know, the hedgehog knows one big thing, but the fox knows many small things. And the point is, the hedgehog, you know, filters the world through this ideological lens where everything has to conform to these preconceptions, but the fox you Know, butterfly collects and allows, like, you know, allows the contradiction to exist because the map is not the territory, the world is a very complex place, and allows themselves to acquire information from heterogeneous sources. Now, the hedgehog is much more compelling to listen to, and the hedgehog is much more self assured, and the hedgehog, what he's saying, is much more coherent. But ultimately, the fox is more accurate. And Philip Tetlock, in his research, has demonstrated that actually. Yes, you know, people who have a more uh, heterogeneous and variegated orientation and are less, you know, singular in their devotion to a a narrow set of beliefs tend to be more accurate when they're forecasting future events. Um, And there's a lot more on that in the book Super Forecasting, which I highly recommend, which we'll probably cover at some point as well. Um, And yeah. So, you know, he's like, the main benefit of free speech is not for the impassioned partisan. It's for the calmer and more disinterested bystander that the collision of opinions works its salutary, aka beneficial effect. Not the violent conflict between the parts of truth and the quiet suppression of half of it is the formidable evil. There's always hope when people are forced to listen to both sides it's when they attend only to one that errors harden into prejudices, and truth itself ceases to have the effect of truth being by being exaggerated into falsehood. Now let that sit for a second. Truth itself ceases to have the effect of truth by being exaggerated into falsehood. So you can even start with something that has a kernel of truth and exaggerate it into falsehood. Right? And then you can always retreat back behind the, the, you know, edge of the kernel of truth and say, no, no, see, we have the facts on our side. Here are the facts. And then, you know, you can go back out like the tide and, and, uh, and reach back into the realm with exaggeration. As soon as your opponent retreats because you've cudgeled them with the kernel of truth that you have. So just psychological dynamics to keep in mind, you know, um, It's a lot of, like, you know, awareness, a lot of, like, mindful awareness and um, recognizing these habits of mind. We all do it. Uh, We all have to to work on it. But if we want to, like, you know, live examined lives, if we want to be moral, if we want to create, you know, better lives for ourselves, people we care about, we have to try to listen to counter arguments. We have to try to allow them to be spoken we have to either, if they're true, accept them, or if they're not true, formulate effective counter arguments that actually resonate. So then he talks about offense, and this goes straight to um, the edge of hate speech. So it doesn't go to the center of hate speech, which I think is, I under, very much understand the inclination to suppress, you know, just like vile, um, you know, attacks on people. Like, I, I totally understand that. But on the edge of hate speech, uh, you know, you, you start to have this this realm of offense, right? What is offensive and what is not offensive? And then, you know, what, what he says about offense here is, I think experience testifies that this offense is given whenever the attack is telling and powerful, and that every opponent who pushes them hard and who they find it difficult to answer appears to them if he shows any strong feeling on the subject, an intemperate and offensive opponent. So this is the old Harvard Law School, you know, if you have a good case, pound the case. If you don't, pound the table. Um, And an example of this might be like, okay, let's say you're an opponent of affirmative action. Is it hate speech to proclaim your opposition to affirmative action? Affirmative action programs are meant to support and cater, you know, cater to um, minorities and give them additional support. So you could say an attack on affirmative action is an attack on those groups and suppress the speech of the opponent of affirmative action by suppressing their speech you're weakening your argument for affirmative action and you're not finding this like you know nuanced edge of where the truth is when it comes to affirmative action right um and and that's a whole complicated topic in and of itself that plenty of people talk about but my point is as an example um, you know it's it's very hard to um to find this edge right it's very hard to and it also goes back to the discussion of psychological harm right so what if you're arguing over uh, a socially substantive topic in the public sphere and every time your opponent you know realizes that you've really you've really got them and their argument is on the rocks they you know throw up the flag of psychological harm and use that as a means to suppress your argumentation. Um, you know that—that's the dynamic that's, that he's talking about, and I think it's very real. Um, so another thing he says is, you know, with regard to what is commonly meant by intemperate discussion, namely invective, sarcasm, personality, and the like, the denunciation of these weapons would deserve more sympathy if it were ever proposed to interdict them equally to both sides. But it's only desired to restrain the employment of them against the prevailing opinion. Against the unprevailing, they may not be used without general disapproval, but will be likely to obtain for him who uses them the praise of honest zeal and righteous indignation. So, again, this book just stuns me constantly because of just... I mean, I know I've said this 17 times, but how contemporary it is truly um just this double standard with how you treat people on your own side and supporters of the mainstream opinion and people who are on the other side right i mean it's it's just constant um it's acceptable to call people things uh, on the other side that you just never call you know call people on your own side um You know, you just look at the way people treat, um, for example, black Republicans, right? The things that they say to black Republicans are absurd and like clearly like, you know, unacceptable. Uh, but they, they see it as acceptable because they're policing mainstream opinion um, and they want them to, to stay in line. And, and they are met with honest zeal and righteous indignation. Or, uh, their, you know, their behavior is considered to be honest, zeal, and righteous indignation, but. So he says, the worst offense of this kind, which can be committed by a polemic, is to stigmatize those who hold the contrary opinion as bad and immoral men. Again, the ad hominems are, are constant, you know, on every side today, um, and it really just, like, changes, it, it, it's a distraction, it, it it's. You know it, it misses the point of dialogue um, and it damages our ability to make sense of reality because it's like every time we try to we just you know resort to name calling and finger pointing so this one right here is like you know how do we elicit heretical feedback and i think this is important socially, but it's also important for people in positions of leadership. So, you know, for CEOs uh, where, you know, as soon as the CEO arrives, like all the problems disappear and everything just seems perfect. And as soon as they're gone, everything just falls apart. If you want to avoid that dynamic, you know, you can hear opinions contrary to those commonly received by using studied moderation of language and cautious avoidance of, um, you know, this kind of intemperate dialogue. Um, you just got to, re- like, really elicit it and and not have this, like, sort of Damocles situation. And you got to see it for the gift that it really is, you know? It's either going to expose you to the truth or it's going to make your argument stronger. And, uh, you know... This has been a, a pretty pretty long podcast, and I think that's a that's a good place to stop. I hope this I hope this really exposes you to some of the challenges and, and nuances in this debate on free speech. It takes you back to the the source of these these um you know source of the debate, basically, right? Like where there was a time when government censorship was just viewed to be plainly the exercise of power by an immoral you know authority that's barely legitimate uh, and has either derived their authority from conquest or inheritance right as time passes you know we we have representative democracies and we're like okay it's the will of the people the people should be allowed to act in a way that is unobstructed right but the reality is those people are not the people And 51% of the population doesn't have a right to control the uh, thoughts, speech, preferences um, of 49% of the population. It doesn't make sense. And, And for it to make sense, you'd need an infallible judge of truth and falsehood, or at least an infallible judge of utility, and we have neither. And ultimately, you know, for you to have opinions and beliefs that have roots And really like you know touch your inner life they have to be contested and you have to you have to contest them yourself you have to hear intelligent counter-arguments and and you have to take the half-truths that you have and complete them with the half-truths of your intellectual opponents so or you may want to at least you know if you want to live this examined life and and uh, ultimately you know get more out of it through having a clearer perception of reality so i'll leave it there um soon i'm going to do an episode on thucydides peloponnesian war um that is an incredible book one of the earliest histories ever written um and it it asks questions about like you know where does conflict come from why do nations go to war um, what happens when an oligarchy or like, you know, an authoritarian state, um, gets into conflict with a democracy, can a democracy with all it's like messiness and, uh, argumentation stand up to the focused assault of an oligarchy slash authoritarian state. Um, and then various other questions about, you know, the nature of power, the way in which the powerful relate to the weak and vice versa. Um, and, uh, also a lot of relevance to today where this is one of the key um case studies still used in the war college to consider the conflict between the US and China so and and a pretty dry read so you know I'm trying to do you a solid by um you know reading it myself and talking about it in a way that hopefully will be a little less dry than the book itself um, which even Thucydides says, I hope I haven't written a book that's so dry that no one reads it. And the answer is, he hasn't. He's written a book so dry that most people won't read it. Um, On the app, where we're at is, we have gotten to the point where we have a prototype that will allow us to track our reading and kind of gamify the reading process, help people read more. Um, It's it's just about ready to be put on test flight and uh, we're going to start testing it with a group of users. Um, We're going to redesign parts of it. Um, So we're chugging along with that. And eventually that'll be a great place to connect with us and like, you know, join a book club where, uh, you know, you'll be able to discuss what we're reading on the podcast with us, connect with others, start your own book clubs and, and track your reading, but also have this gamified reading experience where we use social and behavioral nudges to help you read a little bit more, right? And when you think about like this atomic habits type philosophy of making a 1% improvement every day leads to a 37 times improvement over the course of a year, you know, these like social and behavioral nudges, you know, over time, the um, benefit they provide could really amplify your overall reading life right and it's going to incorporate a lot of the lessons that we've learned trying to read more for this app so at this stage i'm at the point where you know i read a book several short stories research papers poems essays uh speeches um every single week uh plus like some random you know sci-fi and fantasy and just like um, I haven't read thrillers lately, but I'm, I'm open to it, uh, just to keep the, keep the ball rolling. But to do that quantity of reading and have a highly demanding job as like a early, um, member of a startup, um, and do jujitsu and try to play guitar and do all this other stuff. It's not easy. And we've cultivated a lot of tricks to kind of like make it work. Um, you know. So we'd love to share those, and the best venue for that will be through the app. We'll probably do some podcasts on reading more as well. Um, that's something that's definitely on my list. Um, and with that, I hope you have a awesome day. Goodbye.